We open the scriptures once more to Matthew chapter 2. Continue our series on this chapter. We will read verses 1 through 12 again, and now our attention will focus on verses 9, 10, and 11. Matthew 2, beginning at verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Now we begin our text. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Here we end our reading of the scriptures. Sacred history, that is, history writing inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, as we find in the gospel account that we've read, concerns itself with things very different than the history that men write. History books have a lot to say about the days that we just read about, about the great acts of men, mighty Caesar Augustus, all that he did to expand the Roman Empire and consolidate power, even of the lesser kings that were under Caesar Augustus, such as Herod, was known in history as Herod the Great. Man's history takes no account of an event like this. Some wise men from the east coming to visit a little child. So insignificant. So unnoteworthy. And yet, this is one of the greatest things that ever happened in history. One of the greatest things that happened during those days which the world knows as the days of Caesar Augustus. Three Gentiles, first fruits of the Gentiles, come to worship the promised king. 
We've followed these wise men as they came many miles from the east to Judah in search of this king whose star they saw while they were still in their eastern homeland. We've watched as they inquired around Jerusalem and were called by Herod himself and learned the birthplace of the promised king. And now at last we come to the end of their tireless search and we go with them to Bethlehem to see promised king and prompted by the word and the spirit of God to join them those centuries later in worshiping this king who reigns and who is our savior. The events of our text in Matthew 2 verses 9 through 11 of course didn't happen the very night that Jesus was born. They happened perhaps two months or up to two years later. But these events are most fitting for our service this Christmas night. Most fitting for our consideration. For unto us this child was born. Unto us this son was given. He is our Savior. He is our Emmanuel. And the most fitting activity for Christmas Day is what these wise men do. They bend the knee and worship the Christ. Let us do so as well. We consider our text under the theme, wise men worship the promised king. We will first look at how they are guided to him. Secondly, that they are bowing before him. Finally, bringing him gifts. As the wise men set out for Bethlehem, they saw it Once more, lo, the text says in verse 9, lo, that is behold, here's something important that ought to catch our attention. Lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. The star had vanished from their sight for some time now. They had seen it while they were still in the east, but it had since then vanished. It had pointed them in the direction of Judea. But after that, they had to inquire in Jerusalem where this promised king could be born. And they've now learned the birthplace. Bethlehem, Judah. That's where Micah the prophet said he would be born. And they have been sent now by King Herod to Bethlehem to search for this promised king. God had withheld the light of this special star for a time. But now as these wise men begin their descent down the mountainous pathway, the roads leading Out of Jerusalem, they're heading southward towards the village of Bethlehem, which is but five or six miles away. Lo, the star which they saw in the east appears again in the sky to lead them to Bethlehem. Somewhat like how God led his people Israel through the wilderness by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, leading them From the darkness of Egypt through the waste howling wilderness to the promised land. And now by this star reappeared in the heavens. God leads these wise men through the night to the promised Savior. The text tells us that the star went before them. And that's a striking fact. It again emphasizes that the star was a miraculous star. It was not an ordinary star. It went. It moved before them. 
It's hard for us to conceptualize what this might have been like or what it looked like. But it seems as though this star shined extra brightly in the sky. It would have seemed to hang more lowly in the heavens than the other stars. And it moved, perceptibly moved, in such a way that the Magi were able to follow its course until it led them to Bethlehem, where the text says it stood over where the young child was. And that too is miraculous. If you've looked up at the night sky recently on a clear night, seeing all of those stars, none of them can be said to stand right above you such that the light of that star pinpoints any one thing on earth. But that's what this star did. Its position was such that it was above the house where the Christ child was. And with a beam of its starlight, it pinpointed for these magi the very house where Jesus was. And that's striking, for the houses of Bethlehem were likely clustered close together in this village. But a beam of starlight down on this house so that there could be no mistake. This was the house. The promised king was to be found. And thus the text says... That when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. Exceeding great joy. They were not just a little joyful. They were not even very joyful. They were exceedingly great joyful. And the idea of the text is that they had a deep, boundless joy that filled their hearts and filled their beings to the point of overflowing. They could not contain it. You can imagine the Magi speaking to one another joyfully, happily, even laughing as they see the star pinpoint the very house. At last their search has come to an end. His star. They had seen his star while they were yet in the east. And now his star has guided them here. And now they will see him. Him whose light will far exceed this star. Whose glory is far greater than this most wonderful of stars. They overflow. With joy. We can understand that from a couple of points of view. First place, the seeing of this star once again. And it's guiding them to the house where Joseph and Mary and the child were. Confirmed their faith. It confirmed that they hadn't made a big mistake. They hadn't misread this unusual star that they had seen in the heavens. But it was exactly as they believed. It was his star. That this star should reappear as soon as they began their journey to Bethlehem and that this star should behave in such an unusual way, move across the heavens and now pinpoint this house for them. That was a singular sign that God himself was guiding them to the promised king, to the promised Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the desire of nations. And in this too then, 
They rejoiced because this star which guided them to the house was also a singular sign of God's own favor and blessing upon the wise men. God himself was bringing them to Jesus. God sent his star to meet them on the road and to guide them to the house and to show them the place where the Christ was to be found. God's favor shown upon these Gentile believers in the light of his star. And that that brings out a personal aspect of this familiar story, which is heartwarming to think about. Put yourself in the shoes of these Gentile wise men. Some of these first believers at the dawn of the New Testament. God so loved them. Who did not deserve it. They were Gentiles. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were magi. They were Persians. They were from far away from God's chosen people in Israel. And yet God set his love upon them and so favored them. That he brought them to see and to worship the Christ who came into the world to save them too. And God sent his star personally to guide them to the Christ. He gave his star to bring them there. It was as if God with his own hand was bringing these wise men from the east to see and to worship and to rejoice in their Savior. And that brings an application to the foreground for us. As we see these wise men guided to the place where Christ was to be found. Guided by the star. We see something of God's way of working with us too. God set his love on you, beloved. Though you and I are as spiritually unworthy of that love as these Gentile magi were. Yet he set his love upon us. And he sent his light to us. To draw us out of the darkness. God has graciously led you and me and all of his people throughout the ages to this Christ. So that we know him. And we belong to him. And we know him as ours. And know that he is mine. This is how sinners come to Christ the Savior. It's not just that there's a fortunate few who find him because they've made the right choices in their life. God doesn't leave us to find the Christ on our own. If he did, we'd never find him. Look at these magi. These are the last people you would expect to come and find the Christ. And if it had been left to them, they never would have. They never would have. And that's you and me too. By nature, we're those people that sit in darkness. Without hope. Except God sent his light. To dawn upon us. And to shine upon us. And to translate us out of the darkness. God is a God who comes to us. God is the God who comes to those who cannot come to him by themselves. And that's the Christmas gospel. That's the birth of Christ. God the son. Rather than see 
His people perish. God the Son takes on our flesh, humbles Himself to the uttermost, comes down to us to rescue, to redeem, to restore, and to fill us with the infinity of His own blessings. And that's how God works in our lives. That's the pattern. He comes when we can't come. He comes when we won't come and graciously turns us. He sends his light into the darkness that we are powerless to dispel. He draws us even when we are stiff-necked and rebellious. He doesn't let his people go. And those sheep, those foolish sheep, and we're often those foolish sheep who pursue the devices of our own hearts and who rush headlong back into the darkness. He comes after us. He is the God who comes. And because he comes, we come to Him, see Him, belong to Him. And we've been given the gospel. This simple story of wise men visiting Jesus, far more significant than anything you'll ever read in the best written history books that you can study in school or college or anywhere else. How precious and meaningful this gospel history is. This is the word of God, which is his light. Which in a way is like the star he gives to guide us down life's pathway. God has given us this star to be permanently with us. To guide us continually to Christ. To turn us from paths of sin. To point us in the way of righteousness. To shine light upon our life's pathway. The gospel is our star. And the chief and most wonderful function of the gospel and of the Bible, the word of God, is as a star it shines light upon the Christ and upon what the Christ has done and upon who the Christ is, our Emmanuel God with us. Let us, the same devotion, follow this gospel star as the wise men followed the star that God put in the heavens to bring them to the house where the Christ was. So today, this Christmas evening, as we hear this gospel story once again, let us rejoice with exceeding great joy, just as the wise men did, as we look upon and think about God's gift to us. Gifts make us joyful. Gifts are a wonderful thing. It's an act of love when we give our gifts to one another. And likely many of us have opened gifts on this day and given gifts. And there is joy in that. And that's only the tiniest glimmer, tiniest reflection of the joy that comes from the greatest gift ever given. The Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Children, when we call Jesus the unspeakable gift, what we mean is, what the Bible means is not that He's a gift we can't talk about, Or that you can't say anything about him? Absolutely not. Unspeakable means 
so great, you can never find enough words to fully describe how wonderful a gift Christ is. That's what an unspeakable gift is. That's the gift of God in Christ. Words fail to fully capture and to fully express what this gift means to us. The blessedness this gift brings to us. Christ is God's unspeakable gift. Who meets our every need. Are you weary, beloved? Christ is God's gift to help you in your weariness. Christ who says to you, weary believer, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you sorrowful? Christ is God's gift to you who says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Are you hungry? Jesus is the bread of life. He that cometh to me, Jesus says, shall never hunger. Are you hurting? The prophet Isaiah says of Christ, He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. Are you lonely? Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Are you burdened? Weighed down by a guilty and disquieted conscience? Are you dealing yet with the consequences of sins? Hear the word of Jesus Christ to you. Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. The peace of my finished work of salvation for you. I have redeemed you from your sin. I have set you free from its chains. I have taken away your guilt. I have borne your punishment. I have earned for you everlasting life. You are mine. Sin cannot have you. Satan cannot have you. The world cannot have you. You are mine. My peace I leave with you. Are you frightened? In the face of mortality, death, sickness. Go to Christ, God's gift. He says to you, I, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Joyce. The wise men are now standing at the door of the house where the young child was. Straight above them stands the star, a beam of its starlight shining upon the house. And as the star illuminates this house, what do they see? Not a palace, not a mansion. Just the humble home of a poor carpenter. Just an ordinary Bethlehem house. Small. Likely a box of whitewashed limestone. Nothing special. A little peasant's house. Picture in your mind how the scene unfolded from this point. The wise men come to the door of this humble house, still exceedingly joyful, filled with anticipation. 
king is on the other side of that door. Perhaps their, their joy and their enthusiasm overrode etiquette and they just went in the house. Maybe, the text doesn't say, but more likely they knocked. Knocked on that door. And if anyone was going to answer the door in the middle of the night or at least late into the evening, it would have been Joseph. Joseph comes to the door and you can imagine Joseph looking out the door wide-eyed with surprise as he sees these finely dressed foreigners standing at his doorstep. And the wise men speak. And their words must have flowed quickly from their mouths, tinged with their excitement. Though they were Persians, these men were acquainted with the scriptures, and so learned men that they were, likely they could speak a little Aramaic. Likely they could speak to Joseph, and he could understand. And they tell him, Why they are here, we seek him that is born, king of the Jews, for we have seen his star while we were yet at home in the east. And surprise is replaced in Joseph, replaced by wonder, as perhaps he remembers that visit of the shepherds some time ago. And now wise men come to see Mary's firstborn son. Steps back from the door and lets the wise men in to the main room, perhaps the only room of that little stone house, dimly lit by just a couple of oil lamps. There, the text says, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. If Jesus was old enough, maybe he was standing there. Just old enough to stand. Perhaps he had just started learning to walk. More likely he was in Mary's arms. It was night, after all. They see him. Just an ordinary child, from the look of him. Weak, dependent, in the arms of his mother. And yet this child is the promised king. Christ. They look about them. There's nothing kingly about the abode of this child. Look at the poor and lowly surroundings. No royal court in attendance. No servants in waiting. No jewels or royal purple. Catch the light of the flickering lamps. The whole setting is marked by lowliness, humility, poverty. The trappings of power, of royalty, of wealth are utterly absent. And yet it's so utterly fitting that they are absent. For that is who this child is. That is who this king is. Though he was rich. Yet he became poor. That through his poverty. He might make his people rich. As these wise men take in the jarring contrast of who this child is, and yet what they see all around him, his humble surroundings, they were not as so many others were. They were not offended. They did not shrink back in disgust or retreat to the door saying to themselves, what a mistake we made coming all this way just to see a poor child in a peasant's hovel. Now what does the text say? Their knees touch down on the hard dirt floor. 
And after their knees comes their foreheads touching that dirt floor. Verse 11, they fell down and worshipped him. This child in his mother's arms, they fell down and worshipped him. And the idea is that they bowed down and they bowed down so low to the ground that their faces touched the dirt of the floor of that poor house. They prostrate themselves before the newborn king. If anyone had walked into the house at that moment, they would have beheld a scene utterly absurd to human eyes. Wealthy wise men from the east bowing to the ground before this little child in his mother's arms. Is this not far beneath the dignity of these men? No, they humble themselves. They take the lowliest posture before this child. They worship him. They adore him. They praise him. Because of who he is. He is the Christ. The Savior. God in the flesh. God with us. And their act of bowing to the ground was no mere sign of earthly respect, the kind that you would render unto another king. It was worship. They fell down and worshipped, the text says. And that's the very language that the Bible uses In Revelation 4 verse 10, to describe the worship of the glorified church around Christ's throne. Revelation 4 verse 10, the four and twenty elders, representing the whole church Catholic. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and cast their crowns before the throne. What a beautiful connection there. Revelation 4 verse 10 gives us a glimpse of the church's worship of the exalted Christ. On the last day and into eternity future. And yet, that same sort of worship is offered to this little child in Mary's arms that night. As the magi bow. And worship him. These wise men had faith. And by the eye of faith. They saw what their fleshly eye. Could not see. The eye of faith saw through the veil of humble humanity. And saw this child's very real divinity. And this is a marvelous thing. It shows that these wise men. They had some notion of Christ's divinity. They understood that from the Old Testament scriptures. And thus they pay him honors due to God alone. They worship him as God. And that brings us right to the beating heart of our Christian faith. The heart of our faith is the person and work of Christ. Who is Christ? He is the Son of God in our flesh. Both God and man. One person. Fully divine and fully human. God's church. Held to that truth. Believed that truth. Loved and rested in that truth from the beginning. Long before we had the important 
and clear theological language to describe this reality, which we do now. God gave that to the church through church history and through controversy, but long before that theological language was developed, the reality was believed, and we see that in the wise men. They knew who this Christ was. They bow to the ground before the little child who is God in the flesh, humbled low for us poor sinners and our salvation. It's a scene of highest beauty, highest glory that took place in that humble house that night. God's word has brought us, along with the wise men, into the house where the child was. God's word has given us eyes to see, as it were, back in time to that glorious event, to see our King, to see our salvation, our Savior in His humility, in His lowliness. What's our response? Do our knees want to touch the carpet this evening? Do our foreheads want to follow? Do we want to cast ourselves before him? Not in fear, not in terror, but in awe and in adoration for who he is and what he has done. That's the real Christmas spirit. Worship of our Savior and our King. Though our bodies don't take that posture right now, it's not our custom in the Reformed churches. Nonetheless, let our hearts take that posture now. Let us bow. He is worthy. Worthy of all our praise. It's the spirit of Christmas and that's the most worthwhile and fitting activity of Christmas. That's the response to Jesus' birth. That's the response to his work accomplished. Willing. Worship and adoration with that exceeding great joy we've seen in the wise men. The wise men began something that should last for the rest of human history. Worship of the Christ. Until we are a part of that throng represented by the 24 elders. Until we are there in the kingdom of heaven about his throne, and we cast our crowns at the foot of that throne and say, worthy is the Lamb to receive all glory, honor, forevermore. Let us worship. And as we see his humility, the humility and lowliness of our Savior, is that not all the more reason to bow and to worship him? God in the flesh, our Emmanuel, how our hearts are thrilled to praise him as we think about how far down he came for us to lift us up to the heights of his own glory and to make us taste in the fullest possible way for a created being such as we are, to make us taste the glory and the love and the grace and the mercy and all of the wonderful attributes of God. That's what Christ came to do.
That's the light into which he leads. Come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. The last part of the wise men's worship was bringing gifts. They bring him gifts. As part of their worship, they present the child king with beautiful gifts. That's verse 11, the last verse of our text. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. After they got up off of their knees, they opened their treasures. And the idea there is that they opened up treasure chests or small boxes in which they kept some of their most precious goods. And they presented to him these gifts. And this was not something that was done on the spur of the moment. It's not that they came to the house and they saw the impoverished surroundings of the Christ child and they were moved in that moment to give to him some of the wealth that they had brought with them. No, they had intentionally brought these gifts from faraway Persia to give to the promised king as a sign and demonstration of their love and devotion. They worshipped him not only with their words, not only with their bodily posture, but they worshipped him with their deeds, you might say. They gave unto him, they gave unto him of their very best. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were costly gifts fit for a king. The very precious commodities of their homeland. Let it be emphasized that the giving of these gifts, just like the bowing before this Christ child, the giving of these gifts was not just the mere act of homage to another earthly king. It was an act of worship. And the text highlights that by the the word that it uses, presenting. They presented unto him Gifts. And that word presented could more literally be translated offered. It's the same word that the Bible elsewhere uses to describe religious offerings. The offerings that were given at the temple. They offered unto him gifts. This was an act of worship to Christ the King. There's been questions about whether there's deeper significance to the three gifts that were given. There may be. You have to be careful not to stretch things. And yet, this is true. God in his providence ordained that gold, frankincense, and myrrh should be given to his son at this beginning of his earthly life. And it's not unreasonable to surmise that God had a purpose or a reason for ordaining gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It may be that these things being very costly and precious items show the love, the adoration of the Magi. That's certainly true. But we can find some deeper significance here. Gold. That's what you'd give as tribute to a king. 
You'd give gold, acknowledging that you are under this king, that he has rule over you, and that in fact this king owns you and all that is yours. And that very well could be part of the meaning of this gift of gold. It's an acknowledgement of the supreme kingship of this child and how striking that is. This child who is weak, there in his mother's arms, king, supreme king. Frankincense. Frankincense was a special substance that was made from the resin of a certain tree and it was uh, an ingredient in the incense that was used in the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, if you read in Exodus 30 verse 34, you'll find God commanding Moses to use frankincense as well as other ingredients to make that incense that was to be offered in the tabernacle. And so incense, that brings to our minds worship. That frankincense is brought to Christ. Hints at his divinity. He is one who is to be worshipped. And the rising of incense, the smoke from incense in the Old Testament, pictured the prayers of the saints going up to God in heaven and being found well-pleasing in his sight. Christ is both the Lamb of God and our High Priest. Through him, our prayers, our worship, we ourselves are found pleasing and acceptable in the sight of our God. Through the work of Christ, our High Priest. There's a hint of his divinity here. A hint of his work. As the one who comes to give his life for his people. And to consecrate his people unto God. Finally myrrh. Myrrh is another substance that was created. Using the resin of a specific tree. And myrrh. Was a costly perfume that also was used as a painkiller. Remember in Mark 15, verse 26, when Jesus is on the cross, he is offered wine mixed with myrrh. And that could be used as a kind of painkiller. Another use of myrrh was as an embalming agent. In John 19, verse 39, we can read about how Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus used myrrh as they prepared Jesus' body for burial. And so this gift may hint at the fact that Jesus, though he is king and though he is God in the flesh, his work as high priest means he will suffer. He comes to suffer and to give his life for his people. And that sets him apart from every other king. He is the king who conquers by giving himself unto death. Whatever the case may be, However far we can read into these gifts, they are a demonstration of the wise men's love and adoration for this Christ. Worship. And that leads us to this application. It's part of our worship. Let us bring gifts to our king as well. When we celebrate Christmas, Gift-giving is part of that celebration. Because the heart of Christmas is the greatest act of gift-giving that ever has been and ever will be. God's unspeakable gift given to us, Jesus Christ. But now, the proper response to that unspeakable gift being given to us, the proper response is we render unto him grateful returns of ardent love 
We bring to him the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. But we are also to bring him the gifts. The gifts of all that we are. All that he has redeemed with his precious blood. It is our privilege to offer back unto him as a thank offering of praise. That's why the Apostle Paul speaks about the Christian life as offering ourselves as living sacrifices for his glory. We are a royal priesthood under Christ called to offer spiritual sacrifices of praise. We do that in worship. We do that with our words. But we are to do that also with our deeds. Giving all that we are to the service and praise of our King. That means much more than using our gold our treasure, our financial resources for the causes of his kingdom. Yes, that's implied here, but it means so much more than that. It means offering ourselves. What did Christ purchase with his precious blood? You, all that you are, body and soul. Thank him by offering back As your gift of praise. All that you are. Body and soul. Your best talents. Your best abilities. Your gifts. In the service of your king. Put all that you are. Into his service. King. Who gave his all. For you. That's part of the joyful worship of Christmas. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that for a short while tonight we could reflect upon the history of the wise men coming to worship the Christ child. Bless this familiar story to our hearts. Grant that it may lead us to bend our knees as well. And in humble yet joyful adoration to praise Christ our King. May this be not only with our words, but may we also offer unto thee the sacrifice of our whole lives. May we be living sacrifices of thanks. To thee the God who has given us a gift that is truly unspeakable. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.